Welcome back to The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Today, we're continuing our interview with Dr. Gary Studi from last week for our special series, What Plants Crave from Technology. Thank you for growing with us. It's amazing. It's so amazing. Are are there any other technologies um, that NASA adopted early or developed um, that we're also applying in our terrestrial indoor farms and greenhouses? Oh, I think, you know, that that's the most dr- dramatic one, I, I think. But there are, you know, materials like we have porous tubes for, for watering, on-demand watering. So the plants will just pull those, pull those out. So you have a little pressure sensor. It comes the same porous tubes, um, fitted materials for the recovery of water. So you can run that through and purify water back and forth. Filters for removing the volatile organic compounds from from the atmosphere, especially important there in the cannabis industry. But within the more traditional ones were oxidizers to remove ethylene, to scrub ethylene mechanically. Yeah, it's, it's so because you're in this really, really small system you know, they're, they're old time anecdotes. Some of the very first experiments in space, they were, were growing wheat. They looked very well. They had heads. And then when they harvest the head on the Russian, the Shvet, uh, off the Muir space station, there were no seeds in them. Ultimately, they found that the seeds had aborted because of these very high levels of ethylene in the chamber. Oh. Um, early experiments with peas would have that abortion because the plants were now moving in those air, but the but the CO2 and ethylene inside the pods would get to extremely high levels because of no convective mixing. There's nowhere for it to go. So there were, you know, over things that are taken for granted here on Earth and has enabled, you know, efficient technologies to be applied on small scales that are now being you know, scaled up and incorporated into where you've got humidification system, atmospheric purification system, UV treatment of, you know, water and air. Much of that began in, you know, our efforts to get pure, safe water circulating around a clean system. Uh, certainly advances in automation and and, and such, but yeah. you know, once you get into the ground and you know, continuous monitoring of sensor, sensors, a solid state sensors, solid state light, miniaturization, uh, all of those things were necessary. On a very first experiment, I, I, there were all kinds of things and we were growing them up on space and it was all very, very cool. And we'd have problems and data would come down and I, I realized at some point in the middle that the closest I ever came to my experiment was 260 miles when it was directly overhead. And that was, wow. and I had a, you know, interested, highly competent person, but not a horticulturist tending that, that experiment. So I was reliant upon that engineering, the data, those infrastructures, and that knowledge of how those environments interacted within a particular chamber that resulted in plant growth to make decisions, which is not unlike, you know, much of the, you know, agriculture today in this emerging indoor agriculture field, where it is it is automated, it's being controlled remotely or even if it's not remotely and it's off a computer screen on the other side of, of, of the wall, I don't have to see the plants. But what I need are the technologies for the plants to be able to communicate to me what they're, how they're feeling, what their needs are, how I can respond to them. And you know that is the technology that you know, NASA excels in. And you know, that, that applying, but ultimately, it's not the technology that's the driver. It, it is the plant, and it is our ability to synthesize 
what those data streams are telling us to, to, to get the most out of that plant under the conditions they are in. And they may not be optimal, but we need to know what we can do to push them to their limits without breaking them. Are there particular plants? I mean, I know that you described some of the features that you're looking for in terms of air exchange and water and food and harvest index. But are there any plants you've grown that maybe weren't really good at doing those things, but but thrived in microgravity or space? Well, you know, you know, a rabbit opsis seems to do all good, but you can't eat it. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> We've grown an awful lot of a rabbit opsis up there, but you know, things, you know, um, I'm not aware of any. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's a really interesting question. That's gonna, you know, it's gonna take some, some time. I mean, there are things that have low harvest index that have done well, like, you know, wheat or or soybeans have been been grown. There are things that have have grown and you know produced flowers like the zinnias that 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 were grown in the veggie that's been up there now. But you know they had they had a struggle getting that plant in. I wouldn't say they thrived, you know, but they survived and they demonstrated what was possible. Mm-hmm. And if we can demonstrate that that possibility on these low missions and these, shall we say, lower fidelity growth chambers, in much ways, it's you know humans breaking that you know four minute mile. Once somebody's done it, then it's easy to do it. When you right, right, you know, it's right. like we can do this now. So now dozens of plants have been grown in that environment with low humidity, high fluctuating CO2. Are they optimal? No. Uh, Are they where you'd want them to be? Probably not. But do do we have a baseline from where they are at to where we know they can be? Yes. I mean, that's an interesting comment because I'm kind of curious you know, especially indoor growers, whether they're growing lettuce right. or they're growing cannabis, right? They always want really super tight control of their environmental conditions through, I mean, but when you're in space, it it, it seems like what, like based on what you just described too, right. that plants, you know, need to tolerate maybe some high levels of something or low levels of something else. Have you have we learned through some of the space research that the tolerance range of some of these parameters with different plants that maybe it doesn't need to be so tight and we like you said maybe it's not optimal but it's good enough right um, yes and you know some of those operating ranges are like carbon dioxide that you know you know what's that optimal region and I, I'm not I don't like that term particularly living here in Florida and just down the road from Daytona you know the the difference between you know and you know an optimal engine and a blown engine is just a few torque so you know we don't want to be there you know what we want is to get past that finish line in first place second place or at least in the money and you know, that is where we we did an awful lot of work and is still going on out there by a very talented team of folks, uh, finding those limits under that environment, high CO2, relatively low humidity, you know, fluctuating temperatures. Things that came out is that CO2 concentrations, as, as I'm sure you're quite familiar and many of the listeners, as you increase CO2, you're going to get more growth. You're going to grow faster because you're getting the raw material. Light and CO2 is, you know, food. But it gets up to a point somewhere around a thousand part per million. Nothing really changes till you get about 3,000 part per million. And then it starts to turn around and stomata open back up. Water starts coming through. Growth starts to go around. There's there's an upper limit to that. Hmm. Uh, similarly, there there ranges uh, on temperature, a temperature response curve, and humidity control. You know, where is it humidity? Is it VPD? What's the amount of 
absolute water in the atmosphere that you know a particular plant can manage at a particular time. It's not a magic number, it's a range. And understanding that is the talent and skill of the master grower, which is, you know, you know, the efforts to to incorporate that into a control system, I don't think has reached that point because there's not that optimum. There are ranges, there are compromises. And what you don't want, in Gary's view, is you know, one plant to survive at its best. What you want is this warehouse of 100,000 square feet of plant material to come out as a consistent quality day in and day out. So what is that functional range to give you that quality? And those different qualities vary according to the, to the grower, to the customer, to the clientele. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, what's the optimum? It's like, well, you know, you know, what's your optimum diet? It, it yeah. depends on the time of the day and the time of the week. And if you're training <laughs> for a marathon day. or. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very much. You know, it can be very controlled, but that's a very stressful situation, too. Yeah, that's so. true. Yes. You know, you, you said my favorite word, which is vapor pressure deficit. I guess that's three words. <laughs> my favorite term. They really PPD. It's yeah, VPD. There you go. It's one word. Um, like synergy. One word. That's right. But you got me thinking when you said that, and I can't believe I didn't think about it earlier, but at this low pressure on Mars and and in space, I mean, do we need brand new VPD charts? I mean, what what are, you know, our sort of I'll just say a rule of thumb of of targeting one kilopascal, right? Plus or minus. Does right. that go out the window? Does that go out? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean it. It does. I mean you. You don't have a. You you don't have a a two dimensional psychometric chart. You have a three dimensional psychometric space. So you don't have temperature and humidity or or water. So you're checking dew point and absolute dew point and where you're getting the dew point. Now you're adjusting that on on pressure, and that that is a predictable measure. You can you know you know the amount of water that can be held at different pressures. You know at a particular elevation, 0.6 instead of 101 kilopascals, you're at 66 kilopascals or 33 kilopascals. How much water is in there? Oh you know, my God! Lots of you know. So, you know, we were consistently growing down to 33 kilopascals. Uh, you get down to 10 kilopascals, you can't keep up. The water evaporates as fast as you. Wow. And then it's cooling. And so you do that enough, you can evaporate so quickly you can freeze the plant. So do you have to pressurize water delivery to the plants to prevent it from evaporating the atmosphere? No. Uh, the Plant transpiration is will drive that that naturally through it in the environments that we grow in that closed environment. If you're in the vacuum of space, well, yes. Okay. Uh, in the vacuum of space, things aren't going to grow. So typically, what we we are looking at, or where we can cohabitate the plants and and the people, and we we typically have a lot of overlap in temperature ranges and humidity ranges that we can tolerate or perhaps separating them, but they're not outside those ranges a, a lot. Um, so perhaps you can go lower, you know, on plant material is you're gonna go, well, you reduce the pressure, your VPD is greater. So you're gonna yeah. be <laughs> pumping more water out of it. So more water is being pumped out of it. The evaporative cooling is going to be greater, but there's still not going to be that much water in the air because you're at a third of the atmosphere. So your VPD is really high. 
because the absolute water is relatively low compared to 100 kPa. Interesting. So, Interesting. I mean, it, so yeah, there, it's a different way of thinking. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, do plants, and in the absence of of, I don't know, Earth's gravitational force, do do right. they do they grow in a weird direction, or do they still kind of grow up? And what is up towards the light? The plants will grow in whatever direction they they take off. Because okay. there's no way that you don't have those gravitational controls of which way is up. What we call gravitropism. Roots right. will tend roots will tend to go up and then they'll turn down. And then there's you know, shoots yep. will go up. In the absence of gravity, whichever way it comes out of a seed, they're just going to keep going. Which so oh. that requires, you know, the physiological control of a couple of other things. One is the the phototropism. So now with light, I can tell a plant which way I want it to go. Is that up or down? Is irrelevant. I want them all to go to this way because that's where my light sources in this way is my water source. If I turn it upside down and sideways, the, the plant doesn't know because there's no gravity. Or there is, you know, like oxygen to tropism. So they're moving to oxygen or away from oxygen, away from really? you know, CO2 or roots. Because roots need oxygen. Yeah. So, you know, that if you see in waterlogged soils, They'll stay up like in the top. Well, you know, we first we thought it was that they couldn't get to the water. Now we think it's like they're moving to oxygen. So there's mm -hmm. they're sensing an oxygen gradient. Those don't exist. So you've got to use these environmental controls, which is a beautiful thing about plants in Gary's view, is the number of redundant systems that they have you take away gravity, you can use light. If you take away light, you can do an atmospheric composition. You can alter, you know, light to make it go up or the leaves to go up, or you can make them to go flat. Uh, there are different systems. If one biological system gets hit, there's a backup system. So there's a great deal of plasticity and an ability to adapt to, to a new environment. Interesting. Um, I mean, what are some of the biggest lessons we've learned about plants and just generally growing plants or the physiology of plants from the research we've done in space and, and how, how do we apply that on earth? Um, I'd say generally on, on, the things that we learned in trying to keep people alive, not in space or on a different planet, in these closed systems, you know, these controlled life support systems, was one initially was the, the potential of plants. That the, the first tests were, you know, where we had the opportunity to provide really high light, optimize high CO2 control the water, control the photo period. You know, potato yields were twice world record yields in two thirds the time. Wheat was four times the time of the world record yield. It's not, you know, at that point, the models that were complete were being developed at that time at Cornell University, uh, we exceeded their production models by 20%. Uh, they got rewritten and are still used because we began to understand that biological potential was not being realized in the terrestrial ways we were traditionally growing plants. Now we had the opportunity to close them, give them much CO2 and light, push those limits of productivity. As light-emitting diodes became available, we began able to alter the composition, the form, the function, the secondary metabolite 
composition by altering that environmental control. Those are tools that are just now coming into use in commercial horticulture. Uh, it is, it's been kind of a slow road getting there and it will continue to be and probably rightfully so. But what that is, is changing that work that was necessary to stay alive and safe in a tight environment with maximum productivity, with minimum resources, is what's driving this emergent indoor agriculture industry. It's going to become even greater driver as the populations increase and resources become less. So whether that's on an indoor, or you're in a greenhouse, or finding ways to incorporate that closure within field agriculture or semi-closed systems is, is going to only intensify because it has to. It's going to have to, otherwise we're, we're, we're going to suffer some serious consequences across the planet with limited resources and more people. Yeah, and, and if we haven't figured out how to grow food in space, leaving Earth to colonize somewhere else is not going to be very successful until we figure out how to farm in space, I think. What we are learning, farming in space is being adopted very, very quickly in those concepts of, of closure are now being integrated into a new generation of farmers that are technologically savvy, understand engineering, and have the appreciation of what can be potential. So these incredible yields out of very tight places are changing the way we think of what's possible. And once you start changing what, thinking about what's possible, the new possibilities arise. Mm -hmm. So if nothing I mean, changes, nothing changes. I mean, I feel like one of the, the, the biggest lessons learned or, or some of the, the takeaways from the research that that you and and other folks at NASA right. and, and in space research in general, for me, is just that optimization of resource utilization, right? Is that if we're going to go to space, I mean, you mentioned all of these limitations that we have right. in taking up water and taking up food and using energy and the, the CO2 and ethylene scrubbers and all the stuff that we have to take with us to right. grow food in space. And so how can we limit the resources. How can we reuse the resources um, and be right. self-sufficient self and close uh, as many loops as possible, right? So that we right. never have to send something up again to to replenish a space station or the colony on Mars or whatever. Or the colony on Mars and, you know, where is that optimization of what you take with you and how do you reuse it? How do you, yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of, decision making but ultimately that's the question i mean Can do you we, see those do you see those lessons being applied in in vertical farms and and cea here on earth or uh are there lessons that have been learned through that that space research that need to kind of percolate down to our our terrestrial applications i i see them beginning to be applied and, and okay. you mentioned there in the introduction, uh, you know, I was involved with, with, with the group. Many had had some exposure to NASA directly or inter indirectly with research was the SEEDS, the Controlled Environment Agriculture Design Standards. Yeah. And that was an effort to go and say, we have a, a, an industry that is saying we're saving so much water. We're much more energy efficient. It's a sustainable closed system production that's going forward. What's that really mean? And to establish what does that really mean? That there are always competing efforts. You know, you 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 live in that in, you know, temperature and humidity control. They're always fighting each other. And so in a sustainability, it is what is the cost of recovering nutrients from water? How do you recycle that water? What we're seeing are some groups are really trying to do that. They're recovering water, reutilizing it, reprocessing it. Uh, humidity and condensate is being collected. 
trying to be reused. There are the challenges of, on a commercial scale, have the materials caught up? You alluded to that earlier. Have they caught up to the point that we can, how many times can I do this before I start getting toxicity? How much time can I run through before starts, salts start accumulating? When do my nutrient imbalances appear? It's going to take time, but I see it beginning to occur. People looking at it. It's not only seeds, but there are other organizations out there that are setting benchmarks and standards of, all right, how do we measure how efficient we are? How efficient am I at converting a photon to a product? What's that actually mean? How much energy is going in? Is that sustainable? How am I getting there? I'm just, whoa, that's an expensive proposition. (laughs) It's an an interesting challenge, but what I'm beginning to see, or as those questions are being asked, that the individuals are asking themselves, oh, they begin to relook and rethink their operations. Ultimately, a commercial operation's got to be sustainable, has got to make money. And, you know, you can coast along on different ways for, for a while, but ultimately it's got to be able to sustain more output than input, more cash in than cash out, and that it's got to flow and it's going to cycle. And it's going to take time. I think there are possibilities for integrating the inputs and outputs closer, co-locating sources of CO2 to users of CO2 to processors of the waste material or the compost, whether you're using hydroponics or, or media and building an ecosystem around controlled environment agriculture, the, the whole system, not just the production of cannabis or lettuce or tomatoes. Right. Right. And I mean, sustainability, we, we tend, you know, some people, I think, use the term sustainable um, for environmental sustainability and others use the term sustainable as in terms of an industry or a company or, right. you know, just staying staying in the black, so to speak, um, in terms of, right. of profits and making money or revenue stream, I guess. But, you know, I don't think that they are mutually exclusive. I don't think that they even necessarily are in conflict with each other, those two terms. No. Because, right? Gary's view is that they are intimately connected. To the, you know, they, they, they are to look at one versus the, the other is very, very short-sighted because if you grow that industry or that facility to, you know, a point that it is making money, but it utilizes the resources. We, we've all seen them. They run out of the money, the costs show up, and the industry collapses. And what's left is no industry, and the local community is once again a blighted place. So if you can build either that social community, the environmental it's there our air and our water and our, our natural resources and that production of food within a community, they can all thrive. But it requires a commitment to place value on that community. It pays it pays value on those natural resources, as well as placing value upon the industry. And unfortunately, too much of that is adversarial. But ultimately, I think we all want the same thing. We want to be relatively happy, relatively prosperous, and relatively safe. And I, and I you know, I, I appreciate that Seeds is out there and, you know, in the documentation, the reporting, uh, the metrics uh, that's associated with that and to help growers understand, you know, the resources that they're using why they're making some of the choices that they're making in terms of operations and design. Um, have, have there been many operators who have 
who have beta tested or who have gone through the seeds process yet? We're currently in the in the beta testing uh, okay. the pilot phase, so we should be coming out of that in I don't know the next three to four months. Okay. And what, what we're seeing out of that is exactly that questioning of I had not thought about that. Okay. Ooh, I can't do that, or this is not going to be that hard to do. You know, and depending nice. upon what the operation is. You know, the decisions are different, but what, you know, what, what we're seeing is as the growers are working through this comprehensive worksheet, it's like 150 questions of good, better, and best. And so, <laughs> like, ah, you know, it's like not a quick check mark, but it requires thinking about your operation at every level. And what are you, what are the choices you are making? I mean, you get points for automation and consistency. You also get points for, you know, bringing in community and localness and having community, you know, engagement. Sometimes they compete with each other. You have more automation, there's less people. So where are you placing those particular, you know, values? Can you scale and create more jobs? But it's requiring, and I, I'm, you know, as as the organization of myself, I don't really place any judgment on either one of those decisions. What SEEDS provides is a tool for, for the growers and owners to look at their operations and look at their decision-making. Are they in alignment with their ethos, their words that they think they're doing, or you know, at, at the very least, it provides a direction to meet other requirements that are out there. I mean, certainly there's, you know, a lot of requirements uh, and you've been, you know, intimately involved in developing those in California. Those are all referenced to, you know, you've got to meet the minimum of this. You've got to do this to be good. <laughs> you know, you've got to meet the minimum. You hit there, you got to be better, better and best. So, you know, linking to, and awareness of those regulations. Florida doesn't have the same regulations as California, but we want the Florida growers to be aware that that's a benchmark they should be aiming for. Yeah. And they can, and it's achievable. You're, so you're in beta testing right now. If growers wanted to check this out um, or participate, are you guys accepting uh, new applications right there now, are or are you kind of getting through the beta testing and then we'll launch we're a new version? New applications at this point. Uh, we, we've gone through startup phases. We've got our structures in place. We're getting feedback from the community, from the growers, on what those standards are. So that, you know, reach out to, to seeds. It's C-E-A-D-S dot A-G. Uh, and fill out the form and we'll get back to you. Nice. And is this for operating facilities or for like new construction in the planning phase? It, type it, is, it is both. Uh, okay. At this point, we're, we've been beta testing with operating facilities because they're operating facilities. What our ultimate goal is that this would be a, a vehicle for new facilities to look at and provide benchmarks in their design so they can begin to design around these points these this certification and you know recognizing it's going to be a slow project not not unlike leads where it's a voluntary effort but when it has value in the market people are looking for this you can design to a leads building or not you can design to a seed standard or not and that is ultimately our, our goal is that as new facilities come in they will be thinking you know, sustainability, uh, energy use efficiency, minimum input out, maximum output uh, from the very beginning. It's not an afterthought. Yeah. And I think one of the, the biggest impacts that LEED made for commercial buildings and residential buildings is that, you know, over you know, I think it was first started either late 90s or early 2000s. And it was a real stretch 
right? Right. For, For owners and contractors and designers to meet these standards, um, either at a minimum level or, a, you know, a, a very high platinum level of certification. Um, and, you know, I got lead accredited in 2008 and it was still a big challenge. A lot of people were like, oh, my God, this is so much paperwork. This is so much work. There's not enough places where we can get recycled materials or, you know, this and that and the other. And, you know, it took probably 15 years. And, by the time, you know, 2015 rolls around, 50% of those credits were just became industry standard practice because, right, right, so much infrastructure built up around this idea that people wanted to be sustainable. They wanted a lead plaque on their, on the wall of their building. And they wanted to demonstrate that they were, you know, implementing best design and operational practices. And so suddenly it was easy. Right. And so they kept having to move the needle, which is a great thing. And so I wonder for seeds, is that kind of one of your goals too? Is, you know, you got to start with something, right. And to understand where people are at and what they're doing, but could you, do you see seeds as maybe moving the industry? I I do. I I do. I see seeds moving an industry and as well as the other organizations that are, I mean, this kind of, building this organization within within seeds that here is what is needed. It doesn't exist. We have some standards that I don't think can be met to get the best. They're theoretically possible, but that leads research, that leads grants, that leads the academics to say, okay, let's get from point A to point B because there is a need, there is a requirement. If we can get there, we can move this needle from point A to point B. And as an analogy, I you know I think of that in in terms of the LEDs. We started looking in terms of of lights. I mean, they were costing a little red, you know, LED was three dollars. A blue LED was thirty five. You know, to build you know a panel was thousands of dollars of hand putting them together of really low outputs. So fast forward, the demand increased, the price came down, efficiencies came up, engineers started looking, okay, how do I build a luminaire for this little thing? How can I put a a coating on this little bitty chip that's a luminaire to illuminate the, the, the light? And then the energy efficiencies were coming out. And then regulations, and incentives started moving an industry to it. So, you know, suddenly Europe is completely transitioning away from high pressure sodium lamps. US is doing it on, on a different level and a different means, but it's happening. And it wasn't possible until it looked possible. You know, there was no reason to invest in that infrastructure until one had a reason to invest. And I think SEEDS is going to play a role in that. We set a standard that we have technologies, there is a demand, and if first it starts in a research lab, but somebody puts in, say, a greenhouse, a 40-acre greenhouse, well, suddenly that requires some infrastructure for somebody somewhere, and they become successful, then that ecosystem grows. And... uh, that, that's what we're very hopeful it can be, you know, a, a vehicle to, to stimulate that and be a part of that, that, that growing world, this new world of controlled environment agriculture. Yeah. You know, um, it's a good segue to one of my last questions. And I was going to actually ask it a different way, but now I want to, or I, now I want to ask you a different way <laughs> than what I originally had in mind. <laughs> that didn't make any sense. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't have to. Um, what is your vision for the future of controlled environment agriculture? I was going to originally ask you about space, but now I kind of want to make it broader than that. I mean, what do you see happening with indoor agriculture in, in general, in whatever terms? When, when, when I left working at NASA and formed Synergy, I mean, it was, 
does with the express purpose of using those insights and knowledge and that really, really cool stuff I got to do to growing plants in space, to applying it here on Earth to, to solve some of the coming problems, to help feed people here on Earth. So what I see is an increase in controlled environment agriculture. I see a an emphasis on green more greenhouses i'm seeing that that because you can use the sunlight but they're going to have to be in appropriate places you can put them closer to cities you can reduce your transportation costs new centers of glass house or plexiglass or greenhouse control are going to to appear indoor agriculture is going through a transition now from the early pioneers and some crashing and then some surviving and lessons learned, that it will become far more routine. And we won't think about it as like, you know, look at this, this is really neat. It, it still is, it doesn't stop being any neater, but it will become more routine for these, these crops that keep people healthy. I'm seeing an expansion into the, the phytonutrient-rich plants, medicinal plants, other than, you know, cannabis, some ethnically important plants that are in, you know, particular, you know, cultures and ethnicities. As the population grows, it becomes more city. Those traditional foods don't become any less traditional. You just can't get the ingredients. How do you get fresh local ingredients? You grow them inside where you have population centers. So the diversity of food is going to go up. The ability to build infrastructure, that circularity, if you will, of placing of these indoor facilities, you know, next to a refinery or a brewery or someplace putting in CO2, or utilizing, you know, the, the plants and their abilities, say you're growing ornamentals. They comes in that has some capability of removing toxins from indoor agri, you know, farms, you know, sick building syndromes. Not as bad of a problem as it used to be, but at least not in the U.S., but certainly in other parts of the world. You bring that air in, purified out, you know, through through a plant canopy into the building. So you have nasty outside air that's not so nasty inside air. The plants can process it, deactivate it, remove CO2, be a biological filter while producing food within a city of high density. So I, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I, I envision this indoor agriculture or advances in you know, lighting and controlled technology are going to enable integration of plants much more deeply within the cities and communities. I love that vision. I want that vision to be a reality for sure. Well, you're working towards it. So we certainly do. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you. You're on, <laughs> you're on the front lines. You're on the front lines. And it, it's always hard to see, see the vision on the front lines at times. That's true. That's true. Um, sometimes it just feels like, walls or barriers are always in front of you. Um, but, but there are glimmers of light. And, you know, this industry has developed really quickly, right? I mean, it, it feels right. like a long time, but it it's not, right? I mean, it, just, you, you said 40 years ago, right? NASA right. was first attempting to use LED lights to grow plants. I mean, that feels like a long time, but that's in terms of technology development and how we're applying it. Um, it's it's not. Uh, it's not. It is not. It is transforming. I mean, that was probably before the iPhone. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh, and, and even thinking it just about the adoption or the transition from high pressure sodium to LED lamps. Right. I mean, five years ago, most growers thought you were crazy unless you were trying to grow in a vertical farm because that was the only lamp choice you had, right? Because you wanted to get right. the, the those lights so close to the plants. Um, and now, you know, and, and now 
you know, I don't know that it's necessarily industry standard practice for all crops, but everybody is looking at it. If they're not transitioning, they have a little, an R and D space where they're testing it. Something over to the side, you know, there's like, you know, you can only get like penetrated in a canopy from a double ended HPS. <laughs> but they're photons, man. They're photons. Exactly. They don't care where they come from. Uh, you know, you start looking at some of those questions and our understanding of how to use these narrow spectrum lights have changed. Because I, you know, much of that is on the mindset. If you go back as horticulturists and indoor agriculturists and controlled environments, we have been entirely dependent upon human lighting to drive what we do. We originally, the first lights, you know, they, it was before 1900. You had those carbon arc lights were being used to grow plants, but that was all that was available. Really neat, neat, neat stuff. But then we started looking at fluorescent lights because, well, that was it. Then high pressure sodium lights and metal halides. And, well, we're not going to get the same spectra. Well, the only reason we knew what those plants looked like, because that was our only choice for 20 years of growing plants. Now, suddenly we had this smorgasbord and an infinite opportunity to define the spectrum. And it overwhelms us. Now, we're beginning to understand what we can do to get the form, to get the function, to control some of the secondary products. When do we put this color light onto this? What's the spectrum and the timing and the quantity? Uh, we didn't know it wasn't possible to ask these questions 15 yeah, years ago. That's a good point. And also, I mean, I think we've learned that plants are not one dimensional either that the light isn't the only thing that affects how they grow, right? And that right. you you change the light and it changes its water and nutrient uptake. It changes what temperature and humidity uh, you want and what the leaf temperature is going to be. And so, you know, I think, I think some of the people who maybe have failed in making that transition kind of still think of the plant as one dimensional and, and don't think about all the other variables and parameters that are interacting yeah. with the plant that might need adjusting. I, I mean, with yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a really good point because we know that let's say stomatal control, you know, responds differently to the, the blue wavelengths of light than it does to the red wavelengths of light. So as you start altering that, your, your water, your humidity, your temperature, you know, all of those dynamics change. One plant's not a problem. You get a full canopy in a closed room, it, it's big stuff. And that was not a problem when you only had one light source because we, we had figured that out. Mm -hmm. Extension service, it said, when you get this much light and this much humidity, you cut back light or you do this EPD. But the spectrum are all the same. And it was really good work. But now those parameters have changed because I'm not responding just to the mercury line of a fluorescent lamp. I'm responding to two lines that I have control of or three or a broad spectrum in the middle of a white LED. And it depends upon the white LED what that particular mix is. Yeah. A lot of variables. It's almost an infinite number of variables. There, there, there are, but that's, here is, in Gary's view, the beautiful thing. That plants are very good at integrating those multiple variables. And that, you know, I've grown plants under a lot of different spectrum. And I'd say for the most part, they grow pretty well, you know? They may not look exactly the same as each one, but their yields are productive. I can make, you know, lettuce redder or greener or curlier or straighter, but in the end, I can grow that lettuce under a wider range of light because it's adaptable to it. And that is our challenge is getting that middle ground what we want the plants to do for us, 
and then we can give those that environments so they can provide it. And we want it consistently day in and day out. And the very best growers know how to do that. I don't think the very best machines have learned how to do that yet. I love that word adaptable and the simplicity and beauty of that when thinking about plants and just living organisms in general. You know, I feel like with controlled environment agriculture, I mean, the word control is in that term and we're trying to control these variables, trying to control a plant that is a living, dynamic changing, evolving organism over just a few weeks, right? Over just a few months uh, in many, many times. And exactly. And and to think of it as adaptable, not just something that we want to control, but something that we can sort of allow the plant to express itself, to be itself, um, but to do it in a consistent way can be a good thing. Right. There's a lot of genetic potential. Yes. And all of those things. And we're only understanding bits of them now because we have new tools to play with. But identifying how we can do that is is a challenge. And the control is I love engineers. I really do. I I I really <laughs> I feel like a backhanded <laughs> compliment is coming. <laughs> it, 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 Know that it is it is a very sincere compliment, but the challenge is that in in engineering, you it, it's very precise. There are these relationships. There are flow charts. One thing leads to another, and you can get one to another, or maybe two or three. And the there is the reduction to each of that. We solve problem A to do problem B to solve problem C. And the biology is very quick and dynamic that we need to adjust to. One of my favorite, you know, party tricks is, you know, plant physiologists have party tricks. I've got a little light sensor, you know, just a little PAR sensor. I've also got a little spectroradion, but the light sensor is my favorite. So I go out and, you know, and let that show up and you got like 2,000, 1,500, whatever that PAR is. Then I take a single leaf and I put it on top of it. And so that 1,000 will go down to 100. 90% of that light is taken care out of. You've done the experiment. We've all seen that and we measure it. But when you think about it at the speed of light, you know, it's 2.3 times 10 to the 23 meters per second, which is now passing through a leaf that's about a millimeter, which is one times 10 to the negative four meters in diameter. So within you know a, a fraction of a second, one nine seventeenth, one to 10 to the negative 17th, one trillionth of a second, 90% of that energy in that photon has been absorbed, moved up an electron chain, moved down, and converted to something that we will ultimately use as energy. We'll turn it into a sugar or a carbon. That is the dynamics and the quickness and the 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 time scales that we're working on. And we take that so much for granted when you say oh, we get a photosystem one or photosystem two, but those lights are in you know trillions of a second is harvesting that light. And it's going somewhere to make something happen. And that is what we are not trying to control, but so much manage. And the control systems come from the engineering world, Gary's perception, because we're we're altering and we're controlling, and, and, and that's only right and proper. But ultimately, we're managing an environment to get the plant to do what we want it to do, whether it's to be tall and bushy, or you know, tall and straight, short and bushy, have a lot of terpenes, make not too many terpenes, be deep red, be small. It is that managing that environment and those incredible complexity of physiology to make that happen. 
I love what you just said. It kind of made me chuckle because I was thinking plants aren't only the dynamic living organism in this equation. Humans are too. Are. We, <laughs> we are. can't make up our mind either. We want more terpenes or less ter terpenes. We want more red or more green. Like, come on. Plants are like, make up your mind, human. Make up your mind. <laughs> and they, they, they don't care. They will respond to that environment. They will Plants respond. To that. So cool. They will respond to the environment that we provide them, and so, you know, that is how far can we push them to make them provide what we want them to do, and we've selected as a species just a handful of plants that we work with that we use for food, we use for medicine. Out of the tens of thousands, there's only a handful, so. You know, let's let's get to, let's get to know our friends as if our life depends on them because well it does. For sure. And yeah. I think plants are probably more adaptable than we are <laughs> in some ways. If we walk away, they're gonna it's not gonna bother them at exactly, all. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> all right, Gary. So last question while we're loving on plants. What do plants crave? <laughs> Yeah, we are loving on plants. What do plants crave? Plants crave an environment where they can thrive. What plants crave when we put them in, an, in a controlled environment or an indoor, if I were a sentient plant, I would want you know that grower to understand what my needs are and give it to me. Because those plants crave that environment in order to produce what we want them to. We've selected them for it. We talked about wheat. Wheat needs us. Mm -hmm. We need wheat. Yeah. So it, it craves attention. It craves an understanding. And plants crave somebody who appreciate that they are a part of the system, not just a commodity. I like that. You don't think plants are sentient? <laughs> you can't make that comment without me following up on it. <laughs> Plants communicate in many different ways. They, they respond to light. They have volatiles. They are, are very neat abilities to send signals back and forth. There are signals throughout the plant. Uh, hollies are very neat when we don't grow them in inside environments, but they're generally smooth leaves and still they start getting grazed on. Then their morphology mm. changes and all of the leaves will begin getting the little pointy things that we love at Christmas and holly. There are, you know, communication networks of, of, you know, chemicals that move from one population to another. Some various volatiles, various isoprenes. There are a whole bunch of really neat chemistry that goes on in the physiology. Is that responding to an environment? Is that a sentient being? Is our attempt to try and put meaning to a plant? You know, I don't know. What I, what I do understand is a single plant does not operate in isolation. Mm. And we can think that they do, but we, we've all seen populations move out. We've seen things we don't you know, show up in environments or little pockets. I'm sure you've seen them. I certainly have. I can't figure out what's going on here where... We have an environment that's consistent. Nutrients are consistent. You're in big ponds or big flows, but something's not right. But everything around it is okay. And so if I roll back to much earlier in our conversation, much of that I think may be related to this microbial world in the bottom, that we have systems we don't understand that are sensing this problem and protecting the rest of the community in much the way that plant pathogens will start invading, they'll kill all the cells around to contain it. And beneficial organisms, they, there are chemical signals, friend or foe. Pathogens and beneficials both have to penetrate through, through a root into the cells. They start moving up through the intercellular space. And then suddenly you're a friend Ooh, you can hang out here and we'll form a nodule and you can hang out and we'll exchange 
fixed nitrogen for fixed carbon. For your foe, we're going to kill. We're going to kill off the root and protect the rest of the plant. There's some neat signaling that goes on. I don't know what they are, uh, but there's some very subtle and dynamic protective advices that these organisms we depend upon have. Wow. Um, it sounds like they might even be a little social in a way, the way that they kind of group together sometimes or protect well, each other. No, if they're not, we make them be social. Touche. Grow with these 99,999 other plants in this room. Yeah, yeah, let's, let, let's all go in. Let's all, yeah, let's, yeah we, let's all get along. Let's put it in a hundred thousand of you in three stories, and All right. you know, each be individuals, but look exactly alike on the way exactly, out. Exactly, exactly. Um, and to a surprising extent, they accommodate us on that. They do. They do. So that wraps up my official questions, but I have a few rapid fire questions that I didn't send to you ahead of time. Um, so they're just meant to be quick answers, one word, one sentence. If you want to expand on anything, please do, but they're meant to be quick. All right. Okay. Number one, are plants introverts or extroverts? Depends on the plant. Okay. <laughs> that like a cop-out answer. <laughs> of course not, it's not a cop-out answer. Let's okay, let's stand, let's think of something like, you know, kudzu. Kudzu is definitely an extrovert. It goes out, it takes over everything. It climbs up trees, it, it smothers buildings, it hides along with its friends, which would be the morning glories and the poison ivies and the uh, you know, blackberries. You know, those, those, those kind of things would be like extroverts. But let's look at like little jack in the pulpits, which are hiding down in the litter, down in the early spring, only three or four days deep in, in that they show up and they do their do their thing where you can't be in fine. Those are definitely, you know, introverts. They want to be kept by themselves. They are solitary plants. So you get big populations. You're in California, you walk your way up the meadows, up the mountains, you'll see whole meadows there of Columbine. Oh, okay, they're a very social group. But back on the other side, they're in the middle. You may end up with, you know, like one one single Eshinea back in the side. I think that's probably being, you know, an extra, you know, an introvert, being a little bit, you know, isolated. It depends on the plant and where they at. Some grow together, some do not. Okay, now I love that answer. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't a cop-out at all. <laughs> that was a really good answer. What have plants taught you? What have plants taught me? They have taught me to adapt to where I am at, to take and do, to do the adaptations, do the adjustments, to, if not to thrive, to survive in what environment one is placed in. And they have taught me that in, you know, in the right environment, one can thrive. Plants have also taught me that where you, you are naturally at or where you come from or where that origin is not necessarily, you, you can thrive in lots of other places. Hmm. You know, think of kudzu coming to the South. Where you begin does not necessarily mean where you're going to thrive and prosper and, you know, be king of the mountain. So, you know, there is a fluidity in, in, in the plants. There's an adaptability. They've taught me some patience with, with seeds that can lay dormant for days or years or months or decades and then come to fruition. Uh, the trees and the olives, you know, in a lot of the fruit trees, a bit of adversity before you can fully blossom and be prosperous. You need the chilling and the cooling. The seeds have got, the buds have got to be dormant. They've got to be exposed to cold before they will come and flower and actually produce an apple, peach, plum, or a pear. Or, or an olive. So there are a lot of lessons one can can learn from the plants if one pays attention. That's beautiful. If you were going up in space, what is the one plant you would take with you? Ooh. Now that one is a really 
really hard one. I, I'm 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 going to have to put a pin in that one. Okay. Um, I'm going to have to put put a pin in that one because that one plant. If so, I just had one plant. That would mean that I'm not having to rely upon it for food. Correct. I mean, it's going to have to be some perennial that's going to be continuously growing. It's going to have to be very very adaptable, and it's going to have to have some connection back to Mother Earth. Hmm. So where, what I am thinking now, I would probably take a little, you know, little philodendron because a little philodendron, they come down and I used to have those when I was a child and you can cut them off and they will prosper, you know, they'll make roots very easily and they get vines, but they're really neat that if they start growing up the tree, their leaves get larger and larger and larger. So they're a gigantic. And you can get them the size of plates or larger. But if they lay up on the ground, they're very, very small. And that's what you're sold as the ornamental. So, you know, I might have, if that was the only one I had, I couldn't eat it. But it would clean out my atmosphere. It would take very low light, be easy to propagate. And I could, you know, fill up my little space cubicle with vegetation that had these senses, smells, and color and diversity of a variegated philodendron leaf. And I remind you of home. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Okay, so last question. Imagine you're ziplining in a rainforest. <laughs> I love this question. Okay, go on. <laughs> what would you rather encounter? Spider monkeys, wasps, or my heavy-handed wife? Your heavy-handed <laughs> wife a thousand times over. Because <laughs> without her, there would be no wasps. There would be no spider monkeys. There would be no platform a hundred feet in the air, squunching through the mud up a mountaintop in the middle of who knows where. Oh, my so, God. <laughs> Hands down on that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Gary. This was so fun and enlightening, and honestly, just a beautiful conversation. Um, thank you for for your insights, and thank you for loving plants so much, and for all the work well, that you've done. Thank you for the opportunity to chat. I most of my talks don't go down this road. Um, so thank you for taking taking this particular road, but you know ultimately it it is that ability to use the plants in these environments that are incredibly artificial, yet understanding and I might even go so far as say respecting those particular needs so that they those requirements so we can meet them so that the plants can respond to to maintain our survival. We are entirely dependent upon them for our food, our water, our, our oxygen, our absolute survival. And as we bring them into tighter and tighter controls, as we have the technologies to understand them, this handful of plants that have we have chosen and selected over eons, uh, are still going to continue to do what they do. So we we have, it behooves us not to take that for granted. Agreed. Well, um, thank you, Gary. I will see you next month. I will see you at NCRA. Thank you again. And we'll let you know when we are going to post this. Okay. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. It's always great to see you. And, you too. Uh, all right. Talk Thanks, Jerry. All right. Bye. Bye.